Open your Bibles to Matthew 21. What a beautiful day, huh? The sun's shining. I hope it's that way next week when we're heading across the street. That'd be a, a good time to be together. But we're, uh, we're anticipating a wonderful Easter ceremony, and uh, uh, we have some baptisms on Easter. We have, I don't know what we all have, but we, it's going to be a time just to, to praise the Lord and enjoy Him and look at the Scripture and talk about the resurrection. And I, I love the church calendar because you, you just go through the church calendar and we're reminded again and again of who He is, what He's done, and uh, His great love that He has for us. So I had, a, um, I had a, uh, a wedding yesterday. I had to go over to Lansing. It was an old friend of mine. His daughter was, was, uh, was uh, getting married, and they asked me if I'd do that, and I went over to that. And it was in the afternoon, and I got to see a lot of old uh, faces, that I, old faces, old friends <laughs> that I'd, that, you know, from a previous church that I'd served that were there, and the pastor was there, and I got to speak with him a little bit and, and just had a good time of, of reminiscing uh, a church where my father had pastored as well, and uh, had an opportunity to just uh, spend some time with him and talk with him. It was a nice, nice, nice time just to reminisce and and to share a little bit. And uh, and I got done with that, and I got home about 6:30 last night, and I was work, working on looking at my sermon, which I do every Saturday night, and I look at it again, and I rethink, and I think again, and I thought, well, I don't even like this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> So I was up late last night. <laughs> so we're, we're going we're to talk a little differently this morning than what I had uh, originally planned. Because when you come to these, these uh, uh, celebrations, you know, I've been here for 15, 16 years, and, and it's a lot of Palm Sundays to talk about, you know, and to bring something different, perhaps something new, something fresh. And so you're praying over these things, and um, and you you know you're not gonna you don't want to pull out old stuff, and uh, so you, uh, I was up a little late last night. Matthew 21. This is uh, Matthew's version. It's in all of the Gospels and in the Gospel of John as well as the Synoptic Gospels, where they talk about this this event of him coming into Jerusalem. So it's Matthew 21, beginning with verses 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Have you stand together, please, for the reading of God's Word. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find there a donkey tied with a coat with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you will say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and Jesus sat on the coats. A very large crowd spread their coats in the road, and others cut down branches from trees, spread them on the road, the crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Who is this? 
And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth, of Galilee. Lord, add his blessing to the scriptures. Please be seated. Father, we're, we're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for this uh, uh, paradigm of scripture that speaks to us of, of a tremendously important event in the life of Christ. As he rides into the city of Jerusalem and what all that means to us and uh, the ramifications of that for our, our lives today. And we pray, Lord, that as we share together that, that your spirit would move among us, that we might be uh, joyful to be a part of this, this band that follows Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, to put it mildly, this was a very strange coronation, very strange coronation. Now, we, we don't have coronations here in America. I mean, we're, we're, we're not a part of that thing. We never had a king. Matter of fact, when we were formed back in the day, we were, we were born in an anti-king uh, atmosphere and revolution. The closest thing that we get to it is we watch on TV in other countries when they go through this and we'll watch what's taking place with the royal family and, and we're going to see a coronation pretty soon, I think, of, of Charles and I'm not sure when. But this coronation, uh, Jesus speaks to Pilate earlier on in the Gospel of John and he says to Pilate, I'm a king, Right? I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world. Scriptures are clear that he's not just a king. He's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. And this coronation that we're going to see here is very humble. It's very humble. It demonstrates that he is, in fact, God's chosen king. And this comes straight from Scripture. The kings of this world would have their own coronations, and they're very grand. You know, everything we, we watch on with these kings in other lands, they're just unbelievably grandiose. When Queen Elizabeth was inaugurated as Queen of England, the crown given to her had rubies and sapphires and pearls, and the crown at the top was capped with a 309-carat diamond. The top of the scepter held a 516-carat diamond called the Star of Africa, the largest diamond ever found. That's in the scepter. Magnificent stones, the, the best the world has ever seen. So at these coronations, they spare no expense to, to just give glory to earthly kings. They needed to proclaim them. These are, these are people that are important. So in our text, we have a very different kind of coronation. It's marked by an attitude of humility. It's totally the opposite of any other coronation in history. I mean, nobody would do this. And even though this is the king of all kings, he's no ordinary king. But it's a extraordinary coronation. So let's look at, I want to look at it theologically, and I want to look, take a little bit of history if I could, as it's laid out in the Gospels. And to understand this, you need to know, you, you, you have to combine all the Gospels together. 
because every gospel gives us a little bit different understanding of what's happening here. And verse 1 in our scripture begins by saying, when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem for the last time. He's been going there all of his life with his mom and dad, and, and they would go to all of the, of the different festivals that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And this is, this is Jesus' last pilgrimage, and this is the end of his life. It's, it's the end in the sense that it's the culmination. It's the culmination. He has reached his goal at this Passover. He'll die as the Passover lamb slain for the sins of people. He's left Galilee weeks before, and he's walking down through to Jerusalem. And, and at the top there, Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee there, he was up in that area where he was born. And he started his journey weeks before, and he begins to move down across the, uh, the, uh, the Jordan River there. They crossed there, came down through an area of Perea, and uh, that was his journey. That was his trail that he, that he took. Um, as they traveled, now you've got to understand this, as they traveled, Jesus is ministering. I mean, he hasn't finished. He's talking to people. He's, he's going into different uh, little uh, hamlets and villages, and he's speaking to their... And he, he's, he's, he's telling them about the power of the gospel. He's telling them about who he is and the relationship they can have to him through the kingdom of God. And he wasn't alone. All kinds of people were following him, and they came from Galilee. They were walking with him on this, this several weeks they were taking to come down there. And they would be collecting people as they went along. Now get, get a picture of this. More and more people were joining because they were all going down to Jerusalem. So they're gathering more and more people as they were traveling along, all kinds of people, and they would be, be doing this. As the crowds gathered around him at Perea, which is around, they, they, were, they, were, they were flocking to him, they would join this entourage as they headed south. And there they all go. When he got down to Jericho, he crossed back over, you can see, he crossed back over the Jordan River into Jericho, and uh, it's the route you can take today. It's the same route you could take today. Uh, so he comes into Jericho. Now we know what happened in Jericho. He's on this route. He's going to Jerusalem. Uh, he had an encounter with the tax collector, remember? And who was a very, uh, very short little guy. And uh, he climbed up in a tree and we learned his name in Sunday school. His name was Zacchaeus. Thank you very much. Zacchaeus had brought a, a, a tax franchise from Rome, and he used it to betray the people. He used it to line his own pockets, to extort money from them just so he could have it for himself. He was the most hated individual in Jericho. He wants to see Jesus, so he climbs up in the tree. We know the story. Jesus calls him down, goes to his house, has dinner with him, leads him to salvation, and redeems Zacchaeus. And so Zacchaeus joins this entourage coming out of Jericho with the others as they head to the feast. Then Jesus comes across two blind men. And this is a trigger point in, in this passage because they start calling him son of David, which, which Jesus told the disciples, don't, don't, don't talk about me, don't talk about me. But he comes right out and says, son of David, son of David. And Jesus ministers to them. He gives them sight. One of them is named Bartimaeus. So they would have joined this entourage that's going as well. Galileans, 
Pereans uh, from Jericho, inhabitants, two blind men, one short redeemed tax collector, and they all begin to take this trek to Jericho, which is way below sea level. So when they leave Jericho and they head up now to Bethage and Bethany, they're going up 3,000 feet, almost vertical. They're going up, they're taking this walk up 3,000 feet to the little village of Bethage, somewhere near Bethany, I mean really close. Uh, when you look at the, when you look at the uh, it's, you're talking feet there, not miles at the bottom. So this is a short, short, and what you have here, you have Bethany, he's going to Bethany, Bethage is not too far, you're on the Mount of Olives. Remember Jesus went in and he had the Last Supper in Jerusalem, he came out, a, a he crossed the Kidron Valley, went to the Mount of Olives. There he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. There they came. Judas did the kiss. They go back into the temple and they have the trial. And then from that point, you're moving to the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's, that's a very short little distance that you're, that you're seeing there. So there they are. Uh, they, 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 they leave Jericho. They walk up this 3,000 vertical climb to this plateau where they could look over. They could see Jerusalem. They could see all of these things. And uh, on the east side of the city and the east gate of the temple. It's a paved road. It was a paved road back then, which was very rare, but the Romans used that. So they would walk from Jericho collecting more people. More and more people are, are, are going along with them. We've got to get a picture of this. More, you know, if he came here, now a few people, you know, maybe if it was here, would join him as they, as they did this. So he has this huge collection of people following him to Passover, and they're experiencing whatever he's saying, whatever he's doing, and there is this increased sense in that this is someone special. And of course, the disciples are affirming that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God, and he arrives at this little town of Bethage. And he comes with a strange collection of odd people. I mean, when you think about it, you know, they don't have any weapons. They're not an army. They're just a collection of people from this, per this town and from everywhere and nowhere. And uh, he arrives at Bethage next to Bethany where his friends Mary and Martha lived. And we know this, you know. Uh, he has recently raised Lazarus from the dead in that town of Bethany, and so he goes to their home. He wants to spend some time with them, and he stays there the night, which is Saturday night here, and he stays with the family in Bethany. That's his journey. That's what's happening. So John tells us in his gospel that this is six days before the Passover. This is six days before the Passover. That night in Bethany, there was a supper that was given to him in his honor. We read about that. It's in John chapter 12. And at that supper, they show love and they show kindness to him, and they actually pour out perfume. Remember the story, which is to encourage him, but it angered this guy by the name of Judas, one of the disciples. So it's six days before his crucifixion, six days until the Lamb of God becomes the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Six days before the nails, you know. Six days before the thorns and the spit and the anger and the cursing and the spear, the hatred, the sin-bearing. Six days before all of that in his life. Six days before the loneliness of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Six days before he feels the full fury of divine wrath. As he bears this, my sins, 
my sense. And in the midst of that, there's this sweet fellowship, this sweet fellowship with a family. And those who were with him, but there's also the stinging reality of Judas. So knowing of his arrival, uh, John says many Jews came out of Jerusalem to see him. So they were, coming, they were coming out of Jerusalem. He was coming down into Jerusalem. So many were coming out of Jerusalem to see him and also to see Lazarus because they under, knew that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. What was supposed to be a quiet dinner... Uh, with friends, got to be a very crowded experience of people coming out of Jerusalem as well as the entourage that was following him and all the people that were around. And uh, they were fascinated. They wanted to see Jesus and they wanted to see this guy he raised from the dead. That was a, so that ends the pilgrimage. That ends the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage really lasted three years. He was going here when he started his ministry. It lasted for three years. It lasted really from the time he was born. He was born for this. His pilgrimage as God incarnate was coming to an end. And this is the final journey. It ends in Jerusalem where he's crucified, where he's raised, where he's ascended into glory. Now at this very moment, go back to verse 1 if you're having your scriptures, arriving it says, Jesus sent two disciples. Now, this is Passover week, and Jesus says, I want you two to do something for me. And, and again, this is a trigger event. This is starting things. This, things begin to happen here. And what Jesus asked them to do was to begin to stage a coronation. I want you to do this for me. Go, to, go over here, and I want you to do this. And it's a bit disappointing when you have to stage your own coronation. Nobody's, nobody's doing this for you, you know? No one else is going to do it. The leaders of Jerusalem aren't going to do it. They hated him at this time. We know that because at the end of John, in chapter 11, verses 47, it says they wanted to kill Jesus. They're not going to, they're not going to celebrate him coming in Jerusalem. So if there's going to be a coronation, he's going to have to do it himself. And that's what he does. That's what this is all about. And what he does is very important. He wants to create a he wants to create a massive demonstration. A demonstration that makes everybody go after Jesus. Everybody. Everybody to acclaim him. Everybody. And that's going to further anger the Jewish leaders. And by Friday, they're going to hand him over to the Romans and he's going to be executed, right? He's going to be executed. He'll be executed on Passover day. The, the trigger event is him sending these two disciples. So he creates the demonstration that leads to his death. He's in control of all these events all the way to the cross. He's not a victim here of the Jews. He's not a victim of the Romans. He's not a victim of Satan. He's in control of the whole thing. Now, the best chronology would put this event on Monday. And we celebrate it on Sunday, but that's when we worship. And by, and by the way, that, that would be the day that the Jewish people would pick the lamb for sacrifice. And on that day, the father picked the son. The father picked the son to be the lamb of God, God's lamb, God's lamb. So that's the end of the pilgrimage. Verse 2, 
He says to them, he says, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt, untie them and bring them to me. Go to the village opposite you. Well, we saw that in the, in the, in the map that we had there. That refers to Bethage. They were in Bethany, Bethage, opposite Bethany where they were staying. When you get there, you're going to find a donkey, he says, tied a colt and untie them, bring them to me. So what we have here really is supernatural knowledge. It really is. He's not in Bethage. He's in Bethany. He, he knows that. He, he knows where these animals are. He knows there's two of them. In Mark 11 tells us exactly where the two animals are found. The Lord knew that. He sends two disciples exactly to that place. He says, untie them, bring them to me. Now, Mark and Luke, in those Gospels, uh, further tell us that he's going to ride this animal. He's going to ride this colt, this donkey. But they also give us another piece of information. This animal has never been ridden. That's important. This is an animal that has never been ridden. And if there's anything in this entire coronation that's going on here that would be seen as an honor, that's it. That's it. You find this back in Deuteronomy 21 and in 1 Samuel 6, we're told that to ride an animal that's never been ridden was the mark of a special honor. And so the honor, the only honor that you would say that's part of this pageant, this coronation, was riding that donkey. This was a small indication of honor. But that was it. That was it. So now Jesus had no intention of, of keeping these animals, so he continues in verse 3, and he says, if anyone says, hey, what are you doing with these animals? You say, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now that tells us that he knew those people. He knew those people. And that this is a believing home. You know, these are people who believe in the Lord Jesus. Just say, the Lord has need of them. No further explanation. And now what's that about? What's that about? It is just a statement of humility, you know. Well, it does that, but there's much more. There's a very high purpose to that. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Well, okay, so there's a prophecy here, you know. Ah, so now we have an... Old Testament messianic prophecy being fulfilled. This is the first of a lot of prophecies that are being fulfilled during Passion Week. Everything that's happened, happened under his total control to accomplish his purpose, and that was to die and rise again. Now the prophecy is in verse 5, as we continue down. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, a full beast of burden. That comes from Zechariah 9 9, Old Testament. The first line comes from Isaiah 62. Say to the daughter of, of Zion, and, he, and they're put together here. Zion was the highest mountain in Jerusalem, higher than Mount Moriah. And Zion was the symbol of Jerusalem, and the daughter of Zion would be the people around Jerusalem, all those who were there in the surrounding areas. Say to them, Behold, your king is coming to you. And that's quoted right out of Zechariah. Look, your king is coming from the Old Testament. Same expression, 
Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, your king is coming. Same thing. Same thing. Unlike other kings who make war, who make war, this king does not inspire fear and dread, but praise. He inspires praise. He doesn't make war. He's not a tyrant. He's not cruel. He's not oppressive. He's not, he, he, he's kind. He's righteous. He, he doesn't slay people. He saves people. He saves people. He's not rich. He's poor. He's not proud. He's meek. He's not riding a white horse into the city. He's riding a coat, the beast of burden. They say, behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming. Your Messiah is coming to you. And I might just add to that and, and think about it. You think about what the, your king is coming to you. When you think about that statement, that that, that that fact that he's coming to you is kind of contrary to what happens with most kings, right? They don't come to you. You go to them. But he comes to you. He comes to you. This king takes everything he has and he gives it to you to enrich your life. He's your king. He's your king. He's Israel's king. He's Messiah. He's righteous. He's just. He's holy. He's sinless. He's the savior of the world. So the Lord says, go get these animals, bring them in order to fulfill prophecy. Verse 6 says, the disciples went and they did what Jesus had instructed them to do. So Jesus starts to go into Jerusalem a couple of miles away from where he's at now, you know, more or less, it was a short distance. He's coming officially now as the king of Israel, prophesied in Zechariah to fulfill God's plan. That's the history of it. The prophecy is so precise, not just an animal, it's a beast of burden. It's not just a beast of burden, but it's a cult, the full of the beast of burden, prophecy fulfilled. Explicitly. Now look at this praise in verse 8 and 9. Follow me down here. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road. Others were cutting down branches from trees and spreading them in the road. This is a makeshift red carpet, if you will. Smelly, dirty rooms <laughs> that they had are the throne of the road. It's a, it's a great multitude. It's all the people who came with Jesus coming out of Galilee they're coming into the city of Jerusalem, and, and all those already in the city are coming out. Can you imagine the scene? The gates are open. The people are flocking out of Jerusalem. So there's this converging of two massive crowds at Passover, those coming in and those coming out. Literally hundreds of thousands of people is not an overstatement. All of them were coming to the Passover feast. Two crowds surging together, them coming down from the hills, the crowd coming out of Jerusalem with our Lord in the middle. And they're throwing down their garments. They're throwing down the trees. And, uh, and by the way, in, in, in 2 Kings 9, um, kneeling or throwing your coat to the ground was an expression of submission. Submission. It was also a symbol of joy. Submission and joy. So the people are hailing Jesus as their conquering king. Now remember, this was Passover. Very significant. This was Passover. And perhaps there was a buzz that was going around because Passover was to celebrate 
their release in Egypt from Pharaoh, the, the great deliverance that they all remembered, Egypt, Egypt, God set us free, right? Moses, our leader, led us out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, and they were all expected that when Messiah came. He would also deliver them from the blasphemous, godless, brutal Romans. And they hated them. Absolutely hated them. So the assumption was, if this is Messiah, he's going to give us back our freedom. And remember, Jesus had said that he was greater than Moses. Remember? Jesus said, I'm greater than Moses. You had Moses, but I am I'm greater than Moses. And he had shown that when he started raising people from, from the dead. Moses never did that. Right? So the people were filled with hope. I mean, this is excitement. And they're excited. It's Palm Sunday. Well, for us. It's Palm Sunday. It's Passover. If this Messiah, and if he's Messiah, deliverance is close. It's, we can taste it. It's close. It's a very odd scene, if you think about it. It's a lot of previously <laughs> smelly fishermen and a rabble of, of poor common people coming from all parts of the nation here and the riffraff that he collected along the way that just joined him, and they're all coming to this a very odd pageant. But an, it's an amazing thing that happens. Amazing thing that happens. Verse 9. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed him, they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. We know that. We've heard sermons on that. Zechariah 9, 9. He's our savior. This is a cry for deliverance. This is a cry for deliverance. And they identified him as the son of David. That was a royal messianic title. He's the son of David. So they hailed him as the son of David. And by the way, every Jewish boy, that when they turned 12 years old, would memorize Psalms 113, Psalms 114, 15, 16, 17, and 18. All of those is part of the great Hael. And they would all memorize those Psalms. They were Psalms of Ascension. As you're going up into the city of Jerusalem, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's Psalms 118. It was the conquering psalm. The conquering psalm. And in that psalm is the statement, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Which obviously refers to Christ, right? Obviously refers to Christ. So they're hailing him as the conquering king. They call on him to deliver them from the Romans and their enemies. He's the one, he's the one sent down to, to just destroy them with divine power and to save us. And they're all excited. Crush those Romans. Crush our enemies. We've put up, this, put up with this for so long. Usher in, the, usher in the promises of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants and all the other promises that we've received from God. Because Messiah has arrived. This pageant was like no other. No other. Verse 10. Last word here. When he enters Jerusalem, 
It says all the city was stirred. All the city was stirred. Now that, that verb there that's used, it's, all the city was shaken. And that's where, how it's presented here. It's used three times in the book of Matthew to describe an earthquake. An earthquake. They were rattled. They were shaken. I mean, blown apart. Now listen to this. They said, who is this? Isn't that odd? Who is this? Think, have you ever thought about that? I was just going over this last night. Who is this? Does this tell you the insanity of a mob? A mob of people? They're saying all this and they don't even know who they're talking about. Who is this? Think about it. The whole city is shaken by this, the outpouring, the massive industry, hundreds of thousands of people, and they don't know who it is. Well, it's even beyond that because in John 12, listen to what John says in verse 15 of John 12. He's looking at the same event, this event. He says, Jesus finds the young donkey. Behold, your king is coming. That's Zechariah. And he quotes that in John 12 as well. And in verse 16, he says of the disciples, as he's looking at this event, these things the disciples did not understand at first. They didn't understand. The disciples didn't understand. But when Jesus is glorified, they understood, right? We know this. We're looking back at this. So after he ascends into heaven, after his crucifixion, after the resurrection, 40 days when he ascends, they understood these things. And they understood that he had to die. They understood that he had to rise. But they didn't fully understand it until Jesus was glorified. Why? 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 Answer. The answer. Because until Jesus was glorified, until he was glorified, he had not sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them in the upper room, when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth and he will teach you everything concerning me. So their messianic theology never really came together until the Holy Spirit arrived. Right? At this point, the disciples are confused because they have the same messianic theology that everybody else had. That's what they were thinking. That he's going to come, he's going to throw down the enemies, he's going to bring fulfillment to all God's promises for Israel. And Luke says the whole bunch of them, they're all praising God and they're whooping it up and, uh, uh, with loud voices. But they're saying, who is this? <laughs> is that funny, strange to you? Who is this? The leaders, they're incensed. Think about how they're feeling at this time. They're terrified because they're looking at the whole world's going after him. They want to kill him. They can, but we can't kill him. They'll kill us. They're all excited about this, so they're not, they know they're not getting any support from the people here. He was that popular. How can they get away with killing this guy? Well, as you know, the next day, he went to battle. And this is the, this is the amazing thing that's happening here. But he didn't do battle against the Romans. He went to the temple. In the next verses, down that we didn't read, and he attacked Judaism at its heart. 
He dismantled the temple. Tore it apart. This is my house. And I'm going to rearrange the furniture. This is my house. And he begins to tear apart the temple. He dismantles the temple operations, throws the buyers, the sellers, the money changers out, declares that you've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. And instead of attacking Rome, you see this? He attacks Jerusalem. He attacks the religious system. And the religious leaders are looking at this now and they're saying, he's a dead man. He's a dead man. And they're going to put an end to him. Now he's done it. And he did it on purpose. And that sets the table for them to drive him eventually to the cross through a middle-of-the-night phony trial with false witnesses, every bit illegal, and we can go through all that, illegal. They pronounce a death sentence on him. They execute him in the morning on that Friday. At the exact hour, actually, when God had planned so that he would die as the Passover lamb. For the sins, my sins, for your sins, sins of people. And I'll say this. There's always a place in the world for the Jesus that people want. Think about it. There's always a place in this world for the Jesus that people want. There's not always a place for who Jesus is. He didn't come to fulfill your dreams. He didn't come to bring you prosperity and happiness. He didn't come to give you back, give you your carnal desires, what you really, you know, you want. He came to attack your sin. He came to attack that in your life that needs to be reconciled before God. He came to warn you to flee from the wrath to come because it's coming and it's still coming. It's still coming. And he came to offer salvation to rescue you from death to rescue you from hell. And if you thought he came like a genie in a bottle, a genie in a bottle, to do what you want him to do, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong Jesus. He came to confront sin in our lives. He came to meet your needs and to offer you a gracious salvation through faith in his name. So the leaders... And I'm, I'm about done here. So the leaders begin to work on those few days to turn the people against him. They're inciting. You don't know what happens. We, we've gone through this. They're inciting. They're inciting. And finally, the people we, who were shouting something, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. It wasn't anymore your king has come. It wasn't save now. It's crucify him. Just a few days later, crucify him. Crucify him. He can't be anybody's king unless he's, first of all, their lamb. The lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world for your sin. For your sin. Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture. 
in Scripture or this journey, this Palm Sunday journey that speaks of your life, of your death, of your resurrection, of who you are. And as you have come into Jerusalem, so you come into all of our lives. You come as the Lamb of God. And by the way, because you come as the Lamb of God, we recognize, Lord, that you come as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we come to, to thank you. As we share in this communion this morning, Father, this is that which we think about as we take communion. This, this unbelievable event that led to his death and his resurrection. And Father, as we take the cup and share in the bread, pray that our hearts and our minds fly to you, praise you, adore you, and that we would humbly follow you with our lives. We're thankful for this that we've, we've looked at today. We ask, Lord, that you apply that to our hearts as we share in this time of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.